Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Longest Artist Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. Hi, I'm Hillary Frank. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I've got a really special episode for you today, but first, a couple of announcements. If you haven't done this already, please take a moment, maybe even now if you're at a computer, to sign up for The Longest Shortest Time updates on Facebook and Twitter Easiest thing to do, just go to longestshortesttime.com, click on the Facebook and Twitter icons. I have some news about the show coming up, very exciting news. I don't want you to miss any of it. So sign up for the updates. Stay tuned. Also, if you've been following our I've Got News series, Ellen and Tim's daughter was born on May 19th at a very healthy 8 pounds, 14 ounces. Her name is no longer Bean. They're now calling her Fiona Jane. Everyone is doing great, and I'm working on that episode now. All right, that's it for announcements. Now, on to our episode. Ever since I became a mom, I've found myself having these kind of disturbing thoughts, like I'll be driving over a bridge and I'll think, what if this bridge collapses, or this tunnel, or what if this subway that I'm on blows up? What if the train warning system, you know, with the the arms that come down and the flashing lights and the ding, 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 what if that stops working and a train is coming right when I'm driving over the tracks? I have these thoughts at least once a day, probably many, many more times. And for me, you know, I think it all boils down to, well, if that happened, then what would happen to Sasha? Who would take care of her? Would she be okay? I think um, thinking about death more often once you become a parent is completely normal. I I think it it happens to everybody. But um, for most of us, the likelihood of a violent demise is actually really low. For some mothers, though, for people like my friend and colleague, Kelly McEvers, that danger is very real. Yeah, right, so this is one of those moments where you're, like, speeding down the road in a car with dudes with guns. Kelly's an NPR war correspondent in the Middle East. You might have heard her on the radio. We had kids around the same time. Her daughter, Loretta, is eight months older than my daughter. Kelly recently did this radio documentary with Transom.org called Diary of a Bad Year, A War Correspondent's Dilemma. It's beautifully done, heartbreaking, really. Um, You can find a link to it um, on the blog post for this episode at longestshortesttime.com. But I'll just try to sum up the premise for you. So you might remember a couple of years ago, there were two reporters, Tim Hetherington and Chris Hondros, who died in Libya after taking mortar fire. Sitting at my desk the next day. Tim and Chris's deaths hit Kelly really hard. I would pass my hand in front of my face, and it felt like it was weighted. I couldn't hear right, couldn't finish a sentence. 
She called this therapist that NPR has on retainer named Mark Brain. And um, he suggests to her that her system is overloaded. What do you enjoy doing, Kelly? What, 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 What fills your batteries? Spending time with my kid, I said. Her name's Loretta. She's a toddler now. Where's your, your daughter? Tell me about your daughter. Gosh, I didn't realize you were a mum. <laughs> she stays with her dad, my husband, in Istanbul, I said, mm. while I'm working in Baghdad. Ouch. <laughs> ouch, ouch, ouch. There's no beating about the bush. I mean, there's no getting away from that, Kelly. That's, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, Mark seemed horrified that I was doing this job, even though I have a little kid. I started to lose it. This is why I'm calling, I told him. I think this whole weird reaction to Chris and Tim's death is more than just some overloaded system thing. I think I'm really starting to question everything I do. I mean, why do I do this job? Why do any of us do this job? Kelly does some digging and discovers some research that suggests that one answer to why uh, might be that war correspondents have higher levels of a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which, you know, leads people to seek experiences that involve more risk, more adventure, more adrenaline. And, you know, that's what Kelly's job gives her. You know, every time I hear Kelly on the radio, I try to put myself in her shoes. I wonder what it must be like to do the job she's doing while having a young child. And hearing her documentary answered a lot of those questions, but it also brought up a whole bunch of new ones. So I called her up at her studio in Beirut. I I hadn't talked to Kelly since just before her daughter was born. Um, She gave birth to Loretta four years ago in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. People are always like, oh, my God, that must have been so weird. And I th- it was mostly very normal. I mean, she was born in a very kind of westernized hospital where, you know, they obviously do this all the time. I mean, as Saudi women have an average of seven to eight children. So birthing is in, in some ways more a part of that culture than possibly any other because, you know, people are always pregnant and always giving birth. And so it's just completely normal that you would be pregnant or having a child or getting ready to have another child, Um, which was actually kind of amazing because it was like, you know, men you've never seen before on airplanes, like walk up and hold your baby if she's crying because they, you know, they've done it before and they want help and they love children. You know, it's not this horrible experience on an airplane where you get these, you know, horrible stares from people like, how dare you bring a crying baby? <laughs> you know, it's more like sympathy. Like, I have seven of those. I know what it's like, you know. Yeah. Here, hand her to me while you tie your shoe. <laughs> um, so in some ways, it was like the most amazing place on earth to have a baby. And I would love to do it here again. You know, if I were going to have a child again, I, I'm sort of afraid to think about doing it in America. Um, just because of all the judging and, the, you know, all that stuff. Well, that was a question I had for you is like, because you're away um, from here, do you get to like, avoid the whole judginess factor with between totally. moms? Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, none of it. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who have a pretty strong opinion about what I do with my life and what I've subjected my child to um, by living here kind of in the middle of the chaos. Um, but they don't talk to me. So I don't have to hear it. Uh, and everybody else who lives here is doing it too. So they're not, you know, I mean, obviously, yes, we sit around, we talk about, oh, should we, 
you know, should we send the kids away for the summer? Things are getting kind of crazy. You know, we talk, I mean, several of the other foreign correspondents who I know are women. Um, a couple of them have children. We're all really good friends. We talk about stuff all the time, like, oh, do you Skype or not? You know, like, do you tell them you're leaving or not? You know, um, how much do you tell them? What do you tell them you do? I mean, so we have these conversations all the time. But yeah, I mean, it's it's nice. I'm I'm in a non-judgmental bubble right now. So you're you're talking about these big picture things of like, when you're around and when you're not around and stuff. What about even the smaller stuff like um, sleep training and whether mm-hmm. you breastfeed or not? Like, is there judginess over that or do you just do what you're going to do? Ex- again, I was in Saudi Arabia when all that was going on. Like the first year of Loretta's life, I lived in Saudi Arabia. Breastfeeding. I mean, for upper mid- middle class and upper middle class women, breastfeeding isn't the thing. Of course, like, you know, working class women and women who live outside of the urban centers. I mean, of course, they totally breastfeed. I mean, that's just what you do. I mean, they never pass through this kind of 80s, you know, mechanized, medicalized phase. You know, they're sort of just still in the traditional world where that's what you do. So, you know, to so to breastfeed in a, in a culture like that in some ways is sort of like the poor person's thing to do. And it's kind of like, ew, you know, it's not like. But nobody would ever say that to me. It's just a, it's just, it's just uncool to judge people in that way. So how long, how long were you with her before, after she was born, before you had to go off and and report somewhere remote? Um, I remember going to. I was, I, I was super militant about breastfeeding her. In fact, I was like. Maybe one of the things about being far away from home was that I was like, I read like three books and then I was like, that's it. You know, I didn't have any peers to talk about this stuff with. So I was like super militant about things that now I kind of laugh about. I shouldn't have been so militant. I was like, she's only getting breast milk until she's a year old and no formula, not a drop of formula is going to pass her lips, you know, until she and even when she starts eating, it was stupid, you know, but I had this crazy thing that I was just going to feed her breast milk. Um, So, uh you know, I was constantly pumping and freezing and stuff, knowing that I was going to have to run off on a reporting trip. I think she was a few months old when I had to leave like on an overnight trip or a, like an all day trip. And that was, of course, ex- to to the Yemen Saudi border. Um, Yemen was kind of in the middle of this like, like civil war thing in the north. And the Saudis had been getting involved with their war planes. And so they took some of us on this kind of embed with the Saudi military for like a day. It was a, all kind of a joke. But it was like my first sort of intense like. Like, I'm not going to be home all day. I hope there's enough frozen milk. Oh, my God, you know, kind of experience. And I was definitely like the first time I would like was, you know, trying to surreptitiously pump like I was at a checkpoint. We were stopped there for a couple hours and I went into this bathroom to pump. And I had this little, you know, black bag. You know, you didn't know what it was. but It was like a little cooler and had my pump and stuff. And then I came out and um, <laughs> the guys thought that I was like some CIA agent. And that like <laughs> the thing in my black bag was like this like, you know, honing device or something. Or that I was like calling into the mothership. And that's why I'd been in the bathroom for so long, you know. So then... <laughs> Like I like pantomimed to them what was ac- what I was actually doing, and they were so mortified and embarrassed <laughs> that they had like intruded on this private womanly space that like they just like they could, they were just they couldn't even look at me for the rest of the day, and we ended up getting through this checkpoint. It was really, uh, <laughs> really funny. that is the best pumping think, at work story I've ever heard. 
Yeah, right on the on a Saudi on the Saudi Yemen border at a checkpoint, and then yeah, because I was always wearing this abaya, which is this like you know full length black gown thing, so I could just mm-hmm. like stick the pump in there and wear a hooter hider and like pump if I was full, you know, and I was in a taxi. But yeah, that totally freaked people out too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's kind of interesting. Like it's this totally there's certain things that are super sensitive and super taboo, but there are other things that as a foreigner you can just kind of get away with because you're just the weirdo. People are just like, oh, yeah, there's the that's the weird American doing weird American things. So um, y- you and I um, started out at this um, sort of same point right before we had our kids because you um, were an editor at Week in America. You were my editor when I was reporting for the show. You left, um, I guess, to go to Saudi Arabia, to go to the Middle East, at least. Basically, yeah, that's when I moved to Saudi Arabia. And then, so then I got your job after you left, and then the show was canceled, and we both had kids at roughly the same time, um, girls, Mm -hmm. and you um, went in this one direction when you had your baby. You went, mm-hmm. you went like hardcore in the career path. And I went in the opposite direction, which in your documentary, I, don't, I wouldn't say that you call it like the more boring path, but, but more the, the more normal path, I would think. Um, normal, for sure, yeah. And I think what's interesting is from what I gather from what, what you said in the doc, um, you feel pretty, pretty like internally conflicted about this decision you made. And I also feel conflicted and kind of in the opposite direction. And every time I hear wow. you on the radio, I've got to admit, I, or I guess before I heard, heard this doc, I, I feel like this twinge of envy, not because I want to be sure. doing at all what, what you're doing. That's not my thing. But just like, you know, this is one of my peers um, who I really respect, and you know, when it cho- chose the other path, and um, and and it was sort of a relief for me to hear that you're also conflicted, <laughs> and that I'm totally fantasizing about your life like all <laughs> the time. I mean, it'll be different when I actually have to live it, but like I think about it all the time. So, what's your fantasy of like if you? Um, if you go my route and become like the suburban suburban mom, what do you imagine that that's like? <laughs> it's maybe not in the suburbs. That might be a little bit too tough. But like a place where I can ride a bicycle, eat organic food. I mean, you just have no idea how much I dream lust for things that seem like completely simple and normal in America. And maybe it's only because I visit America and I see this stuff and I'm like, oh my God, it's artisanal cheese, you know, but, um, (laughs) and maybe I'll be bored of it in two weeks. That's going to be the hard part. I mean, I think it's like, you know, six months in, you know, the first six months are going to be like, wow, wow, wow. And then it's, then the hard part's going to kick in where it's just like, that's right. Here I am still sitting at home. It's, it's one of the most gut-wrenching decisions I've ever had to make. And I still haven't even fully, totally made it. I mean, it's like this psychotherapist who I talked to in the piece who I'm still talking to um, says it's just, it's like quitting drugs, it's like quitting smoking, it's like quitting heroin, anything. And I really now understand it's like so hard 
mm-hmm. um, just to pull away. Just today, there was a car bombing in Beirut, and I like got in the car and went because we went right toward it, and we went right to the scene, and we were right in the middle of everything. And that's just what I do. You know, there's going to come a day when that is not true anymore. And so, yeah, how am I going to deal with that? I don't exactly know. Um, I think the key for me is trying a job that probably still involves a little bit of the adrenaline, you know, covering something like crime, guns, the border, you know, something along those lines probably makes a little sense to ease me out of this. You know what I wonder? I think like, you know, kids get more and more interactive as they grow out of babyhood. Um, Like, so you're saying you're going to you're going to try to give up this one form of of adventure in your life, um, you know, for your family. And then, and then like try to create a different form of adventure that will be just as satisfying. Um, but I wonder if Loretta will become more a part of that adventure as she gets older and is more able to kind of like contribute to the adventure. Yeah, I think about that too, right? I mean, I think I'm trying to graft my own personality onto her as we do with our children, like to see her just like take off on a bicycle. Like the first day we were like tubing behind a speedboat on her first fourth birthday. She was like going one handed, like being all like daredevilish. I'm like, see, that's my kid. Um, not fair to her. Need to need to pull that back a little bit. But I mean, so I want to think that she's totally adventurous and like she'll just be a part of this. We're, we're you know, right now we're dragging her to all these things, but hopefully she'll be the one leading the way. But, you know, she also may end up being one of those kids who says at one point, can we just not move anymore? You know, like, can we just stay somewhere? Or, you know, maybe she won't even be able to say it. I'll have to figure it out for myself. I've tried to prepare myself for that because I know a lot of kids who, you know, children of diplomats and military people who've moved around a lot. It's not a great life, you know, so I don't I'm pretty wary of doing that to her. You know, I don't want to force her to be adventurous if she doesn't want to be. But it is something that I want to do. I mean, I if I were alone, if I were single, if I weren't a mother, I would stay here. I would stay in the Middle East. I'd probably stay here for a decade. I'd be one of those people, one of those old timers, if, if I survived, you know, who was still sitting at the bar telling war stories 10 years <laughs> later. But I think like, you know, I grumble about a lot of my everyday stuff um, with my daughter. But like now that I'm talking to you and I think about this, I'm like... Being a mom is going to be the most amazing adventure of my life. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you yeah. feel that way too? The psychotherapist said that to me. He's like, you know, you can go into Syria. He's like, your bag is packed. You know that it's like a well-worn path. You know who to call. You know, you've got that down pat. He's like, this thing you're about to do, this is the scary thing. This is the brave thing. This is the big unknown. Yeah. You know, and I think that was one of the most, I mean, God, that was the best thing about when I was pregnant and when I did give birth to her. It was just like, holy crap. This is a whole new level in the video game of like, of uh, you know adventure like this is the this is the adventure this is the real thing yeah because you really just have no you can't control it you know just you can you know you can sleep train them or whatever but like you know you know that feeling i don't know if you had like just that inevitability of it all like she just kept getting older there was nothing you could do you know i mean all of a sudden you were just face to face with your mortality in a way that you never had been and you're just like i you know, I want this to stop and you can't it can't there's nothing that can stop it you know it's just rolling on and you've got to face it every day that's pretty cool right you know like you are so close to death when you're doing your job in the middle east all the time but it's true. Like giving birth, I, I, 
I've never felt closer to death than when I gave never. birth. Nothing. Nothing made me face my mortality like having a child. Nothing. Not not dodging a sniper. Not, you know, embedded with U.S. troops in Iraq. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> but that, yeah. Having a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was like the march of time is upon us. And then the constant fear f- for their life. Yeah, of course. Of course. Like all of a sudden you have to care about something so deeply and so completely that, of course, you think about death all the time. You know, it's just like 40 years of not thinking about death. I mean, it's obviously part of the, you know, halfway point in life as well. But wow. Yeah. Good kick in the face with death. Kelly goes on vacation on August 1st. It will have been three weeks since she last saw Loretta. She is very much looking forward to that first moment when Loretta runs into her arms at the airport. It's a move they've been practicing for years, and Kelly hopes to not have to use it for a long, long time. There's a picture of Kelly teaching Loretta to ride a bike at longestshortesttime.com, as well as a link to Kelly's documentary. Thanks to Kelly McEvers, Jay Allison, and Transom.org for giving me permission to air a clip from that doc. Please remember to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Like I said, exciting announcements coming. Tell your friends. And as always, if you have a story of a surprising struggle in early parenthood that you'd like me to consider for this podcast, go to LongestShortestTime.com and click Contact. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated it. this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.